Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hey, girl. We did a show about boy bands in 2013, girl, and it was a good show, girl. But, girl, I've been thinking that maybe it's time to do another show about boy bands because, girl, that was eight years ago and so many things have changed. Although not you and me, girl. We're still the same. So, yes, boy bands... I'm going to stop doing that because I know it's getting annoying. (laughs) But boy bands reconsidered with obviously the burgeoning bulldozer of K-pop thrown into the mix. Uh, We will revisit this fascinating subject. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. You are my fire, the one desire when I say I want it that way But we are two worlds apart Oh yes, you know what we're talking about already. We're talking about boy bands. This is a subject that we did tackle. We tackled it eight years ago. Uh, but we feel as though the subject has ripened and grown. Like a, like a cantaloupe sitting out in a rainy field. Uh, and so we're going to cut the cantaloupe open and see what's inside of it. Uh, and we have lots of guests to talk about it. We are going to, uh, in the middle segment, talk very specifically about the K-pop manifestation uh, of boy bands. Obviously, this year, BTS with Butter. But for the sledgehammer that is Olivia Rodrigo, BTS, a K-pop boy band, probably would have had the song of the summer. Um, and then in the third segment, we're going to talk to a member uh, of a boy band, which has this almost kind of un- incalculably sad uh, history, uh, which I had not been fully aware of going into that. But we will talk to 
the man who is the surviving member of LFO. Uh, that is all to come, but we've got to establish some parameters, some ground rules. We've got to figure out the taxonomy and the morphology of the boy band, and who better to do that with us than Maria Sherman, uh, the author of Larger Than Life, A History of Boy Bands from NKOTB, that's New Kids on the Block in case you don't know, uh, to BTS, the aforementioned BTS. Uh, welcome to our show. Hi, thanks for having me. I love the cantaloupe metaphor. That was good. <laughs> it just came to be. So the... Um, <laughs> The uh, you, the subtitle of your book sort of suggests a time parameter for thinking about all this, but really boy bands go back quite a ways. Uh, you even go for, so far as to enlist list uh, in, into your uh, idea, at least about you know a male music star who could excite the temperaments of young female fans. Certainly, yeah. The subtitle is a little bit of a misnomer, so I apologize for fooling anybody. But the book actually begins in the mid-1800s with the composer Franz Liszt as the sort of first historical Western, I should say, example of kind of a teen idol. And in this, not a teen himself, but in the sense that young women were sort of losing their minds over this incredible musician. Um, an example I use is he drops the cigar stump at some point in the mid-1800s and a woman picks it up and encases it in diamonds and wears it as a locket, which feels like incredibly contemporary boy band behavior, you know, buying a lock of hair on eBay or, or some equivalent. So uh, can we can we sort of, uh, as we sort of vault then uh, at least into the mid-20th century, if not later, can, sure. can we sort of set up some kind of uh, groundwork for like, I mean, I mean, I don't know. Crosby, Stills, and Nash are probably not a boy band. It's like three boys, but they're not a boy band. So how do we know who's a boy band and who isn't? Yeah, it's mostly defined by behavior as opposed to some sort of handy definition. We know boy bands when we see one, but we know that because we can identify certain traits that they possess. Typically, they're brought together by some sort of CD manager type, which gives it the sort of behind the music appeal. Um, they perform for primarily young women, which is the sort of Beatlemania of it all, which still stands and is still such a force, a phenomenon in the boy band story. But beyond that, Boy bands are typically three to five members in K-pop that is different, and we'll, and we'll get into that. Um, these are typically young men in their teens or 20s. They sing without embarrassment. Uh, they harmonize well together. They dance. Choreography is a huge thing, unless they're instrumentalists, but that too is a little bit rare. Um, and they sort of worship their fangirls. And if they're talking, and, and their songs are primarily performing love songs or songs about crushes, typically keeping it PG uh, to appeal to a broad demographic. So those are the things we kind of look for when we're trying to decide, is this a boy band? Yes. I, I recall, as you're saying all this, that Lisa Simpson uh, in The Simpsons reads a magazine called Non-Threatening Boys. Uh, that's like her favorite magazine. Uh, and and, and Non-Threatening Boys, I, I think, are I mean not this is not universally true. You can come up with some some guys in boy bands that don't quite fit that. But there is something like that, right? They're they're not bad boys exactly. It, absolutely. The non-threatening boys magazine is such a great example. I think my book cover kind of rips off of that image a little bit. It's very much this idea that these boys offer, and I'm still calling them boys, even though some of them are obviously men. Um, they appeal to a certain soft expression of masculinity. They do, they are not threatening to you if you are like a 12-year-old girl or like, I don't know, I should say tween sort of coming into um, your, I don't know, crush curiosity or sexuality in that sort of way. 
Um, and they also, in, in the Western tradition, boy bands, each member kind of holds a stereotype or a trope. Um, they are, the, they could be the heartthrob, which is the sort of front man, uh, the Justin Timberlake of it all. There's the cute one, which is the youngest one, who is not the heartthrob. There is a distinction. Uh, typically, he's sort of blonde and, and very sort of pure. Um, and you can, you know, interrogate that term as much as you would like. There is a bad boy, but it's typically to the extent that he wears a leather jacket and maybe has a regrettable tattoo. It's typically, it's not very much like they're not going to a biker bar sort of thing. Um, there's the older brother who is the mature responsible one, typically the oldest member of a group. And then the first des- fifth designation, excuse me, is the uh, shy or mysterious one, typically <laughs> the artistic introverted one. Um, I mean, if you're going to be cruel, you could say the one without a distinct personality. Um, and in history, we see it, it's also sometimes used as a like a racist designation as like the non-white member of a boy band, which is, you know, the, the sort of worst case scenario of it all. All right, so uh, we're going to kind of, first of all, I love that whole thing that you just did. That was a great taxonomy. Uh, and I'm sure it could be applied perfectly to, say, one dimension or something. Um, but uh, one direction, I mean. I always call them one dimension, and I think I'm just a Freudian slip on my, on my part. <laughs> but, um, but so it either does or doesn't, and you and I slightly disagree about the, that, start with this band. Let's do A1 Cat. Oh, yeah. Something I think you'll understand when I say that something I wanna hold your hand. All right. I don't think the Beatles, they might have been a boy band sort of at that moment. I don't, they just so quickly morphed into so many other things that I, I, I can't put them in that category. But I know you, <laughs> and I, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time arguing about it either, but give, make the case that they're, they're, they're kind of the proto-boy band. They lay the foundation for most of those behaviors that I, I uh, set forth, right? They're like wearing uniformed looks. I Want to Hold Your Hand is a perfect example of a song that kind of speaks to that PG sort of young uh, budding sexuality. Or it's, it's very much a song about a crush, which is so much the boy band story. It's bread and butter. But most specifically and significantly, I should say, is they had their Beatle maniacs without that phenomenon of young women sort of losing their minds and just being totally enthusiastically expressive about their love of a musical group, the boy band phenomenon really doesn't kick off. Now, um, I've spoken to a lot of people who disagree and say the Beatles aren't a boy band. I'm more of the mindset that they are a boy band and they are so many other things, whereas many boy bands are simply just boy bands. And that's a distinction that sometimes needs to be made. Right. I mean, um, I, I think by, by 1967, they are arguably maybe the first pro- well-known prog rock band uh, in America. Uh, some people think that Helter Skelter is the first metal song uh, ever recorded. Absolutely. You know, I mean, th- so they are many, many other things. But yeah, I would say for there's a snapshot of a moment. I mean, I think the other difference is that it, there, there's a way in which most of these bands can only marginally transcend their natural fan base. Whereas at a certain point, everybody was, it would be easier to find the people who didn't like the Beatles, you know, by 1965 than, sure. than, than to find the ones who did. But so, and I think also, and I think this is very much part of your point, it was certainly possible then for people in the entertainment business, not performers, not artists, but people in the entertainment business to look at that and think, well, these guys are maybe borderline musical geniuses, or as it turned out, they were musical geniuses, but it might be possible to capture some of this energy using 
other young men who were not necessarily, maybe they don't have to be musical geniuses. And Kat, uh, let's do A2. This is kind of what you get then. The rock group down the street is trying hard to lend their song. Serenade the weekend squire just came out to mow his lawn. Another pleasant valley Now, before I get you going on this, let me lay my cards on the table. I'm a big Monkees fan. Uh, I, right. I I am not here uh, to shovel dirt on, on the Monkees at all, actually. Uh, and Peter Tork has sat in the studio with me for an hour, and it was one of the really good hours of my life. So, um, but they are, this is different. This is a calculated effort with not even just one shady Svengali, but sort of, you know, corporate Svengalis behind the whole thing. Absolutely. And I, I should have said that earlier. Another example of why the Beatles in themselves are sort of a proto boy band and also boy band is that you have the monkeys come sort of developed out of their image, the sort of um, the first of many, many boy bands in, in boy band history who exist simply because another group did something great and they sort of want to mimic it. They want to make money off of it. Um, and the fact that it comes from a television show, too, is so true to the boy band story of so many of these groups are sort of seen while they're heard as opposed to being heard first, which is which is kind of speaks to how image focused this whole phenomenon is. Yes, they, they do have to look a certain way. Uh, and, and looking at them is a big part of it and being telegenic is a big part of it. It's probably worth noting, noting that you could put together a pretty good band uh, of people who failed their monkeys auditions, starting with the aforementioned Stephen Stills, uh, Paul Williams, I think Dan Hutton from Three Dog Night, and Harry Nilsson. I think all of them uh, auditioned and didn't make it. So uh, I don't know what you would call that band. <laughs> you wouldn't call them the monkeys, but you call them something else. So, uh, and apologies for going. So I could do a whole show about the monkeys and probably will at some point. Uh, but so. Let's sort of fast forward a little bit, uh, and and so we get uh, we move really from the late '60s, and we'll just sort of gloss through the '70s kind of fast. Uh, it, now we're in 1983. Here's Candy Girl by New Edition. So, (laughs) you know, one of the problems with this is having any kind of ironic distance from any of this. You know, this really does. I mean, Letterman famously, you know, created a fake boy band called Fresh Step, which is also the Mm -hmm. name of a kitty litter. Matthew Morrison actually was one of the singers and dancers in it. Stuff from a certain period sounds kind of like almost somebody's parody of that period. But maybe you can just kind of give us a who in, in, in their moment. What who or what was New Edition? Yeah, I kind of consider a new edition to be the sort of turning point in the modern boy band story. The group we get right before we start seeing the term boy band everywhere being applied to the groups we'll talk about in, in a few minutes. Uh, but they're these group of young bucks from Boston, um, and they're put together by one of those sort of CD manager types, this guy, Marie Starr. Um, well, actually, excuse me, they already existed as a sort of Motown cover group, and then he gives them original songs, the first being Candy Girl. 
And the name is sort of indicative of, of maybe what that song sounds like in that uh, they were supposed to be the new edition of the Jackson 5. There have been times I've fooled my mother by playing that song and, and she's like, oh, is this the Jackson 5? So you sort of see that there's already this sort of history of borrowing in the boy band story when we get to that point. Um, but they're sort of noteworthy because they have a good run. They're like top of the charts on the urban radio when we still called it that heinous term back in the day. Um, but they're not making any money off of it. And that's because they've signed a series of exploitative agreements. You know, they're boys from the Boston projects. They don't have that sort of industry, um, you know, entertainment business know-how and they kind of get screwed over. And that too becomes a sort of through line in the boy band story, the sort of incredible rise to fame, the not so incredible discovery that you are being exploited by the person who is supposed to have your back. And, uh, and then another group eventually comes to try and take over. Uh, and they do very successfully. <laughs> well, I think we should talk about, I mean, you know, there's sort of this sense that uh, Borg needed McEnroe, that uh, Magic Johnson needed Larry Bird, that ultimately, uh, uh, you know, in a lot of instances, the 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 qualities uh, of a, a leading athlete or artist may be honed by a rivalry. And so and, and I don't think there's ever been anything quite like that. Uh, the the one that existed between the Backstreet Boys and In Sync. Although oddly enough, once again, we have a shady Svengali playing both ends against the middle on this. But so, tell us a little of that story, anyway. Yeah. Um. So there's this man, this manager, Lou Pearlman. He um is he rents jets to New Kids on the Block, which is the sort of group that I was alluding to in the yeah. new edition, then comes New Kids on the Block story. Um, and he realizes that these young kids are making so much money on just like merchandising alone. It's incredible how much money you can make out of a boy band if you get the like, you know, clothing line at JCPenney and the lunchboxes and the dolls and this, that, and the other. And he decides, I'm going to find a way to do this. I'm going to create my own boy band. And I'm already in Orlando, Florida. There's this myriad of talent here they aren't in la or new york so they probably also don't have that sort of yeah you know like hollywood background i'm going to pull them from disney world and we're going to make a boy band and so he creates the backstreet boys and after a few years of that success decides you know where there's coke there's pepsi some other person's going to come and make the competition i'm going to create my own competition and creates and sync and the rest is sort of history <laughs> Well, you know, maybe we could just say a little bit about that history. And I'd be interested interested in your thoughts. I mean, interestingly, for example, the Beatles kind of liked the monkeys and, and occasionally mm-hmm. would affirm them. They did a song in which they kind of made fun of the monkeys, too. But um, but they seemed to sort of like them and sort of get why they were popular and, and enjoy them on their own terms. In terms of this this somewhat staged rivalry between these mm-hmm. two incredibly popular boy bands, I don't mm-hmm. know, was, was it a real rivalry? I mean, did the... Two parties take it seriously? I'm of the mindset that it's primarily just brilliant marketing. I mean, this person could see that to create his own competition would be the most lucrative decision. That's clearly somebody who has their eye on the market and understands how pop fandom behaves to some extent. Um, but I, th- I think there is at least some distrust if you're the Backstreet Boys and this manager comes into your life and says, I'm going to make you a star kid, and then has this sort of like secret other band. He, they had no idea NSYNC was forming, even though they were sharing practice spaces at that point in time. So it was very much a bunned up operation. I think if there is any rivalry, it comes from that sort of betrayal, um, which is which is such a juicy Hollywood story, but really sort of tragic. Mm-hmm. Well, I get, I wonder also, do you have a sense that there is 
in terms of a fan base, a difference between the Backstreet Boys type uh, and the NSYNC type? I have a couple theories, and I'm sure fans would disagree, but that's what's so fun about boy bands. Everybody gets mad and excited all at once, Mm. which is sort of reflective of that sort of mania of it all. Um, The Backstreet Boys are a little bit broodier than NSYNC. They're like, you know, like even just in the coloration of their music videos, it tends to be more blues and blacks. I mean, they had an album called Black and Blue, so that's clearly where I'm pulling this from. Um, and, And I think so fans of them typically like leaned into the sort of, you know, boys to men inspired balladry thing a little bit more. Whereas NSYNC were a little bit more energetic. They were better dancers. Um, it was more upbeat, uh, more single driven in, in that regard. So I think fans of them typically um, identified with that sort of stuff. The like the big, massive sort of stadium single kind of thing. Though, you know, obviously Backstreet Boys has in those kinds of songs too. NSYNC sort of brought it to the next level, you know, more just more energetic, I would say. So I think those fans kind of leaned more that way. Yeah, I mean, not that it matters what I liked, but I liked NSYNC. And I, <laughs> I, I but I, I think also it's everything that you're saying, I think rings very true. And, and I think we should also acknowledge that every year there's a new, new uh, group of Lisa Simpsons who are born, who grow up to be a certain age and who want these boys, you know, and, and I don't know, I can't remember who, it might have been Amanda Hess, there was somebody who wrote a whole piece about the grimaces, you know, mm. that these, the anguished looks, particularly in the Backstreet Boys, when they were emoting, when they were being moody, you know, they'd sort of twist their faces uh, into these grimaces of anguish. And, and I think, you know, there's sort of a sense in which the core the core fans of these bands, they're, they're often maybe young women who are not ready to achieve any kind of ironic detachment about this. They, they want this to be emotion that they can latch on to. Is that making any sense? Absolutely. And I think that's a large population of, of, of boy band fans. And then I think there are also some of us who maybe came to the game a little bit older. I'm calling myself out in this statement mm-hmm. um, who kind of come at it with originally sort of ironic detachment and then sort of a bit of cognitive dissonance of sort of realizing that we love this music um, and we love it for its sort of emotional like exercise of pure joy. Uh, but we also recognize that it's part of a great pop music machine and it does feel like a business maybe more so than other aspects of the music business. And, uh, and that can color your appreciation, too. So um, from there, and I think this is kind of your your main entry point uh, into the world of, of boy bands. I mean, if we're going to sort of, you know, call ourselves out for age. I mean, I lived through Beatlemania. <laughs> That's how old I am. Uh, I, I was a big fan of List, too. I saw him live a couple of times. So um, <laughs> let's, uh, let's hear uh, One Direction, Cat. That's A4. I know. Tell tell us about what it was like to be a, a One Direction fan. What did they do for you? 
Well, I'll tell you, it still exists because I think it's criminal to stop that song <laughs> right, right where you did. Um, yeah, I discovered One Direction when I was the most pretentious music snob alive. Truly was the music director of my college radio station. Basically only listened to Scandinavian noise music on cassette. And then at some point, somebody played What Makes You Beautiful for me, uh, which is the first single in 2011 that One Direction released after being on the X Factor, coming coming together through, under the guidance of Simon Cowell. And uh, I was immediately hooked. Um, but I, I did request Best Song Ever because I think it's the most appropriately titled song of all time. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's funny because a lot of boy bands don't really pull from the sort of classic rock, pop rock thing in the way One Direction does or did rather. And, and I think that was mainly my entry point. Like the intro of that song is, is sort of lifted from uh, Bob O'Reilly in a way that they kind of, they got the blessing of the who, so it's fine. <laughs> but very much just this energetic, joyous thing. Sometimes it's not that complicated. It's just that this is a happy band that writes happy songs. And as an old curmudgeon at all of 19 years old or whenever, when I first heard it, it uh, unleashed something in me where I realized, you know what, sometimes it's just good to listen to a three minute pop song and, and that's kind of it. Right. And, you know, this may be a British thing, uh, um, but my sense of One Direction being way too old. Uh, to be, you know, anything like their <laughs> core of fan. But they, they, they seemed, they, let's go back to the Beatles. The Beatles were emphatically in on the joke, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, they would release these things to radio stations about their next album. And John would, be, you'd hear John saying, it'll be the usual rubbish, but we're going to charge more money for it, you know, yes. and that kind of thing. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, One Direction seemed a little bit in on the joke about being a boy band uh, and it seemed to have, from time to time. I mean, even, I don't know, even the title of that song, in a way, has, I think, a little bit of irony. I mean, we've, I think we've already reached the point where Justin Timberlake uh, has fl- kind of distanced himself a little bit from NSYNC and become a staple of Saturday Night Live, where, mm-hmm. you know, he is riffing comically on a lot of the tropes of boy bands. Uh, and I'm guessing with maybe One Direction's born in an era where you can't 100% take yourself seriously anymore. Absolutely. And that's, 100% because of the internet. One of the reasons One Direction is able to be so popular stateside is because we have access to their story from day one based on sort of Twitter alone. Um, historically, before One Direction, and with the great example of the Beatles, British boy bands didn't tend to land in America. We kind of liked the sort of homegrown, down south success story like a Justin Timberlake and Sync. Um, so it's very much that sort of that irony and that humor that you're hearing or that you're picking up on, I definitely think is true because one, British people are cheeky as heck. And then two, because they are an internet phenomenon. And that allows us to approach things with a little bit more humor. Granted, when you're nine and listening to this band, you could be reading it as totally sincere and earnest. And there's value in that too, of course. Or when you're a little bit older, you can find that humor. And maybe that's a little bit easier to find a track in. Um, last question for this segment, which is, I mean, we encounter boy bands in the flower of their youth. And mm-hmm. one of the truths about flowers is that they do wilt. And, and maybe you could just say a little bit, I don't know, I, I in my studying for this show, I came upon a, a blog called Dark Side of, Back, of Backstreet. And there was uh, an entry called Backstreet Boys, The Hair Evolution Part Two of A.J. McLean. Uh, <laughs> and it just sort of shows, you know, one member of the Backstreet who I, just was had male pattern baldness among <laughs> other things, and and you know it's just sort of like you're supposed to be young for your entire life. Well, you can't do that. So so how do they cope with that? How do they deal with getting older? Do they just become not everybody's favorite thing anymore, or can, can you fight it? 
Yeah, it's, I guess there are two sort of paths. One, you can sort of do the reunion thing, become the man band, do a Las Vegas residency like a Backstreet Boys or sort of famously New Kids on the Block kind of pioneered the boy band fan cruise where their aging fans will come and like spend a weekend with them in the Bahamas on a boat, which is fantastic. And I love to see, you know, moms on the town <laughs> sort of um, really, really engage in that. But um, in Western boy band tradition, there's this thing called the five-year rule. And it's kind of like an unspoken rule where boy bands typically like when they exist and reach great heights and kind of disappear, they have five years at their peak and typically will break up. Someone will embark on a solo career. Something will happen to sort of cause or begin some fracturing. Um, and at that point, I guess you have a couple decisions. Are you a Backstreet Boys where you don't have the sort of um, iconic front man type who's going to kind of leave you in the dust like a Justin Timberlake? Or are you going to kind of keep on going for the few, um, not few, they're still very, very many, but like the loyal fans, the diehard fans who are going to continue to grow and listen to whatever you do, even if you venture into adult contemporary territory or whatever that may be. Um, so there are options. I think beyond that, beyond your sort of own orbit, it can be a little challenging um, because, you know, you have fans who are just going to see you as like boys forever. And that's not great. You want to individuate, you want to become a man. You probably want to start writing songs about adult themes. Um, and that can be tricky. So I don't envy the the course at all. No. All right. So uh, we're going to take a little break here. Uh, and when we come back, you'll hear at the beginning of when we come back, the introduction we did eight years ago when we did uh, our first ever boy band show. One, two, three, four, go! I wanna have a food court love So meet me at the Wetzel's Pretzels, girl I'm coming at you like a hot dog on a stick So be my Panda Express! Stop, 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 I've got blood coming out of my ears That's how bad you are How many times do I have to explain? Next in line has the chance to be the greatest boy band of this era but not if you sound like a freaking kennel. But please, we, we've been rehearsing this song for 62 hours. Can, can I just please call my family? We are your family, okay? Next in line is your family, okay? You have no other family, okay? Hey, you. Excuse me? What's your name? Greg. Wrong. Ow! Your name is Zach now. Greg is not a cool name. You're Zach now. That guy, he's Ashton now. And that guy, he's Liam. And this guy... I'm sorry, who are you? My name is Tucker. I'm not actually in this band. I was trying to use the studio next door, and I got trapped here for the oh, last... Oh, you are in the band. Everybody is in the band until I say they aren't. You are now part of Next In Line, and you can keep your name because it's cool, but hand over your wallet, your cell phone, and your belt. Can we talk about doing a version of Finishing the Hat, you know, by Sondheim? No. Do you not even understand what a boy band is? Boy bands do not do Sondheim. Boy bands dance and do songs like Food Court Love, which is going to be a huge hit. Do you know what else boy bands do? What? Exactly what I tell them to do if they want to see the next sunrise. Now, whoever went to the bathroom in his pants, go get cleaned up, and we'll take this from the top. In the meantime, you, listen to the show about boy bands. And now the tambourine player in the free credit report band. 
Colin McEnroe. That's me. That was the introduction to our 2013 show about boy bands. Well, we've, we've tried to climb forward uh, into the into further into this century, I guess. Uh, still with us, Maria Sherman, the author of Larger Than Life, A History of Boy Bands from NKOTB, New Kids on the Block, to BTS. Does not actually mention Next in Line anywhere in the book, but that's <laughs> since it's an oversight. Joining us, uh, and not for the first time, we are delighted to have back uh, Asia Romano, a culture staff writer for Vox. We're going to uh, focus on one of the really new developments since 2013. Not that it's entirely a new development, but in terms of penetration into uh, the American consciousness, uh, K-pop boy bands uh, are one of the big changes. So, uh, um, Asia, maybe sort of just to set the stage here, I mean— we don't want to conflate K-pop, which is a big thing and has lots of different elements with it, with boy and girl bands. Uh, but maybe give people just sort of a sense. I mean, K-pop, as you've written, among other things, existed in a certain fixed point of time made possible by actual changes in the governance of South Korea and their television system. Right, exactly. Um, if you think back to the 1980s, uh, South Korea was undergoing a number of political and cultural changes. And as part of that change, um, the government really started to encourage uh, media and corporations to um, develop uh, forms of what we might call soft power, uh, ways to really um, shift Korea's economy from being an industrialized uh, based economy to being more of a culturally based economy where they were exporting cultural products. Um, and one of the chief ways that they did this was to facilitate the rise of uh, what I would call um, uh, idol group studios, uh, which basically are uh, two or three major studios in Korea that uh, facilitate the develop, like the scouting, development, training, and um, production of uh, groups that are made of um, trainees who have been rigorously prepared for years for stardom, if that makes sense. Um, I always tell people that I, I like to compare it to the Mickey Mouse Club. <laughs> when you had people like Justin Timberlake and Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera and uh, later on in the Disney Channel, like people like Selena Gomez, right, who were just groomed from an early age to become pop stars. It's very much like that where you have this system that's very, very, um, this very routinized way of I don't want to say manufacturing, but of of producing a pop star to a very very high level standard. Does that make sense? It, do- it totally makes sense. We'll kind of circle back to to that, but um, let's sort of familiarize or remind people uh, what this can sound like, particularly when it reaches the U.S. Uh, this is a dynamite. Uh, by BTS from their 2020 uh, album B.E., uh, which, as uh, Asia has reported, became the first K-pop song in history to debut at number one on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart. So, um, Maria, I mean, as you look at uh, at K-pop boy bands and, and sort of compare them to the other phenomena that you've uh, accounted for in your book, I don't know, is, is there a big substantial difference stylistically? To me, that really does sound like you know, a pretty natural outgrowth of everything we've talked about so far. 
absolutely. I, I think it's clever that that was their first English language single because it does feel very familiar to Western pop music tradition. But if you look at earlier BTS records, you see that they're sort of all over the place in, in their genre explorations, which is something, you know, an American or British boy band typically wouldn't do uh, for fear of isolating an audience. They are, I guess, a little bit more artistically creative in that in that way. Um But it is interesting because the way that we talk about boy bands is typically in this like sort of anglophonic metric. How we understand boy bands is because we've seen them before. We still look at them and we think Backstreet Boys are in sync. BTS, and it's not simply because they're from South Korea, but because of how the Korean pop music industry works, we sort of have to reframe our thinking. And um, and that can sometimes lead to a lot of exotifying, which is, you know, sort of tragic and, and, and terrible. And um, it can become very, pretty sticky. But I, I think so <laughs> to, to maybe have a cop out answer. Yes, that in that example, very much kind of in line with the sort of pop boy band tradition, but also no in all of the other ways that they sort of operate. Um, and even just by focusing globally as hmm. opposed to like an American marketplace specifically for many, many years, as you to be the sort of form in the 90s and early 2000s. So, you know, uh, Asia, you you uh, referenced kind of that sense of manufacturer. And there's, there's a term, there's a term that gets applied to some of these uh, other groups, not to BTS so much, but slave contracts, this, this idea in which to a degree that would be probably unprecedented, even in the Mouseketeer Club or, or whatever, whatever American analog you want to cite, these are young people essentially deprived of personal lives and freedoms to a certain extent. Well, before I get into slave contracts, I want to touch, I want to jump back to dynamite a little bit because I want to make clear that dynamite was essentially um, custom ordered by uh, the president of Columbia records, (laughs) um, basically for uh, tailor made for an English and American audience. Like they basically had two British songwriters write the song in English um, so that it would be streamed on, uh, so that it would be played on the radio, on, on U.S. radio. Like, and I think Dynamite in particular is a very, a really, really big departure from most of the other songs that BTS has done. So I almost really hate that it's like, was the first song that they hit the number one charts, because I think it's like a really, um, almost like a parody of what American mm-hmm. uh, music, especially American mainstream top 40 radio listeners expect a top 40 radio song to sound like, you know, it's just got all of these like very uh, catch, like catchphrasy, like just p- pieces of jargon thrown in <laughs> like LeBron and sweet tea and, and, and just on and on and on. And I've, I've written extensively like criticizing this whole, like the way this song in particular was produced. But I also want to emphasize that like, even on the album that be, that Dynamite appeared on life goes on, they were doing more experimental things. And like, if you look at last year alone, they had uh, the single on which they performed uh, in grand central station with a giant marching band. Um, and then they had the single black swan, which they performed, which they actually premiered um, by having a, a ballet troupe do it. Like they do the entire song um, as a ballet instrumental. So they have been doing all these really, really, really cool, neat experimental things that I think just get kind of completely lost in that the whole conversation around dynamite. So I just am really kind of salty about dynamite, you could say. <laughs> Um, as a representation of BTS and K-pop in general. Right. And um, I, th- I think there's a way in which there's an interesting kind of tension here between because, yes, obviously that song does seem manufactured to suit Western taste. But there's also a way in which, as I understand it anyway, BTS 
one of the ways that they've been able to cross over to this market, one of the ways that they've been able to appeal is by sloughing off some of the more repressive aspects uh, of, of that were sort of placed on previous K-pop bands. They don't have a slave contract. They have more control over their lives. They have more creative control. They create more of their own music, right? Right. And I want, to, I want to emphasize that it's not just BTS. Like, I think in general, slave contracts over the last decade or so have really fallen by the wayside as more and more people grew aware of them, as, as more and more K-pop artists spoke out about them. And as the Korean government actually passed legislature um, to prevent them from occurring. So I think by the time you hit, say, 2015, 2016, um, slave contracts were mostly a thing of the past. Um, and that's in part due to artists like BTS and Blackpink and other um, really what we call uh, third generation artists speaking mm-hmm. out about um, about you know the system, the industry treatment and and really trying to um, find more ways of being authentically themselves and pre- presenting themselves to their fans um, because I think in the past there was this really, firm like rigid cultural perception uh at least my understanding as a as a white as a white k-pop fan for a long time um my perception was that there has been a a, i guess a a relaxing of this sort of rigid uh, persona standard that a k-pop idol had to to live by because i think in the past you've seen um occasions where k-pop artists who broke the rules of their contracts were were not only not only forced to abide by you know the penalties in the contract, but they were publicly shamed for it, right? And I think that there's a much, much different understanding of the industry now. There's much more accepting um, relationship between the idol and the public, and they're more able to be themselves. All right. Unfortunately, we're going to have to cut this a little bit short just because I do want to leave some time here at the end of the show uh, for for uh, Brad Fischetti. Uh, but I want to thank uh, Asia Romano very much from Vox. And uh, obviously, uh, Maria, this show would have been uh, impo- impossible uh, without uh, your book uh, and and your expertise. Maria Sherman, author of Larger Than Life, a history of boy bands from New Kids on the Block to BTS. We are going to take a break and we will come back and talk to someone who is very, very familiar with this genre. So if you were conscious at all uh, in 1999, you probably heard that song, uh, Summer Girls uh, by LFO. Um, It was uh, everywhere. Um, 
And joining us now is Brad Fischetti, uh, the surviving member of LFO. LFO wound up having uh, an almost incredibly sad um, kind of afterlife. Um, two, the two other main members died, one in 2010, Rich Cronin, and, and then Devin Lima in 2018, both from aggressive forms of cancer. Um, and so, first of all, Brad Fischetti, thanks for agreeing to be on this show. Hey, Colin, thanks so much for asking me. It's a great pleasure to, to be with you today. You know, listening to that song now, and, and then, I had a little relationship with that song at the time, which if we have time, I'll mention it. But it's not really a boy band song, I don't think. There's a way in which already there's a lot of winking going on, uh, I think, in in that. I mean, first of all, you mentioned New Kids on the Block, you know, and, and from there, there's sort of a sense in which it's more like a song about being a boy band or something than it is a real boy band song. You know, back in those days, we really detested the, the term boy band. Mm-hmm or being called a boy band because at the time it had negative connotations, right? Uh, it was like, okay, boy bands are contrived and they don't write their own music and they can't sing. They, you know, they just, there wasn't a whole lot of respect around the, the term boy band. So we really, we really pushed against that, that, that uh, title back then these days, you know, I embrace it. Cause you look back and you go, well, of course you were a boy band. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, it's, it's pretty clear. Maybe you were different than the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, and, which we certainly were. But, you know, I think the uh, term boy band seems to encompass a lot of different groups. Like I've even seen groups like Boys to Men considered a boy band, right? So I embrace the term now because it gives me the opportunity to be involved with a really important part of music history. So I don't fight against it like I, like I used to. But you're right, Colin. We were definitely different than uh, some of the other groups. We didn't sing like five-part harmony, mostly because there was only three of us. <laughs> we started as a rap group, um, and we didn't do a lot of synchronized dancing as soon as we made any money because we hated it. Uh, and so as soon as we had a little bit of, uh, uh, I don't know, more of a voice, we we cut that out pretty quick and hired some backup dancers. Right. I mean, you know, it's, it was at the time, I think, both a blessing and a curse, right? It's a blessing because there's a way to market your music. There's a way to get through some doors that you might struggle to get through uh, otherwise. Uh, and to, there's sort of a, uh, a made-to-order audience in a way. But there's also exactly the kind of yoke that you're describing chafing under. I think you may have even written something on your chest at one point about this. Yeah, that's kind of a funny story. We were, we were over in Germany on live TV, and this is before we really had really made it. Um, we thought it'd be a great idea to write across my chest in Sharpie, we ain't no boy band. And at the end of our set, I ripped my shirt open and, <laughs> and there it is, we ain't no boy band. And well, it did not go well with the label. They were not happy with us for that. Um, but it's it's a it's a funny story that's it's fun to tell these days. But um, you know, I think people realize that from the boy bands came not only some really great music, but some really talented people. I mean, look at Justin Timberlake, one of the biggest superstars on the planet. Donnie Wahlberg, you know, an acclaimed actor. Um, you know, in my own group, you had Rich Cronin, who was an extraordinary songwriter who wrote hit songs. You know, Devin had the voice of a generation. You know, I went on to start a record label that's been uh, successful over the years. So in all the groups, there's really talented dudes. And um, and so, again, these days, I, I welcome it because it gives me a chance to be a part of a, uh, of a really cool moment in the history of music. 
So I have a quick confession to make, which is that uh, when Summer Girls came out, I was working at a commercial radio station. I was like four commercial radio stations bunched together. I was on the the, the big talk station there. But I took the song and <clears throat> and repurposed it with lyrics, just kind of making fun of all the people I worked with. Um, and one of the things I noticed about the song was it was because of the meter of Summer Girls. It's really easy to do that. You know, there's a kind of free verse quality to his writing uh, in that. You know, there are all these sort of, sort of, you know, images kind of jumbled together. And, and I mean, it was just, a, I noticed it was a very musically and rhythmically and metrically accommodating song that's kind of a better song than it got credit for. Well, I love that. I never heard that word before, metrically accommodating. So <laughs> I love that. But for now on, when people say, what's the greatest hymn of song? I goes, well, Clearly, it was <laughs> a comedy. Who knows what that means? Some idiot that you talk to on public radio said it too. So right, these days, we should say that you are you're performing uh, again. You are performing at times with some of the other groups from that area, era, like 98 Degrees and O-Town. Um, obviously, this must be very challenging for you. One thing about a yeah. boy band is it's a band, and, and you yeah, are you know, a solo actor. Colin, in, in, um, in 2017, uh, you know, Rich Cronin passed away in 2010. In 2017, Devin Lima, my, my other bandmate and my best friend, were given the opportunity to bring LFO back on the road. It was something we never considered. It was something that we discerned and prayed about and finally decided, okay, let's let's do it. We'll, we'll bring honor to Rich and we'll, we'll nurture the legacy and we'll bring a little bit of joy to the fans. And so we did it. And it was very successful. And um, we had made plans for the next round of the tours when... Um, a month after the tour, Devin, who was like the strongest, fittest guy you'd ever meet, um, he got sick and he was diagnosed with cancer. And a year later, um, he died. And, you know, that sort of sent me into uh, into the darkness, if you will. And um, over over time, and with some help, I was able to sort of uh, get a grip on things again. And um, I was asked by my agent if I'd be interested in being a part of this Pop 2000 tour where you have uh, guy, different bands from that genre um, to out on tour together. And then this particular show, usually Lance from NSYNC would be the host, and then he would do a little NSYNC medley with O-Town. And Lance wasn't available, so they asked me to host the show and then do a LFO medley with the O-Town guys backing me up. Mm. And I never considered it before, but um, I did it, and it was extraordinarily emotional, but it was very gratifying, and the fans were just so supportive. And so I've become a part of that tour. So right now we have Mark from Sugar Ray on the tour, usually Lance or Chris and Sink, Ryan Cabrera, Old Town. And um, we go out and it's touring a little bit different these days. You don't get in a bus and go for two months. You go out, you fly in on weekends and, and play a few shows. It's been very, it's been amazing. And it's been very humbling. The fans have been extraordinarily supportive of me because you know, I have zero interest in standing on that stage alone. I've never had an interest in being a solo artist, and I don't consider myself that. I'm put in this position because I lost my two best friends, my bandmates. And so I go out there to honor Rich, honor Devin, nurture the legacy, and to bring people back to a time when things were just a little bit easier, a little bit simpler, to relive those maybe teenage years or middle school years. So it's been a great blessing for me. Again, like you said, it's hard, man. It's it's very emotional. Most shows, I, I finish the show and I'm in tears, you know? Yeah. But uh, I feel very fortunate and blessed to have the opportunity. The Old Town guys um, back me up when I play these uh, Pop 2000 dates. I also have a show called The LFO Experience where I tell the whole story from 1974, the year Rich was born until today, uh, through music of the time, music that influenced us, our music and personal stories. That's a show I do with with a full band, and uh, 
it's a little bit more of an involved uh, event, but these Pop 2000 dates have been uh, great for me. And um, I'm and, so glad to hear that. And I mean, I think it is sort of the case that these are songs of a, of a carefree time. Uh, and your audience has grown up too, and they're probably less carefree. They've had their own burdens that they've inherited over the years, and it must be wonderful for, wonderful for them to journey back with you. We're going to end here because I want to have a few seconds here to hear Girl on TV by LFO and to thank Kat Pastor, our technical producer, and Wiz Kid Lily Tyson. She's the person who put this great show together. Uh, got Brad, among other people, to join us, uh, but Brad Pichetti from, uh, from LFO, thank you so much for being with us today. She means to me I feel for the girl that's on TV On TV I wish it I wish it away